Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. I am so excited about this week's episode. Today I'm joined by the legendary Naomi Klein, author of No Logo, The Shock Doctrine and most recently On Fire, The Burning Case for the Green New Deal. We talk about her long and incredible career, whether we're facing another lesson in the politics of the shock doctrine as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, and how the left can organise in support of the Green New Deal. I want to say a big thank you to all of our patrons. Uh, This month, we hit £500 per month in subscriptions, which puts us halfway towards our fundraising target of £1,000 per month, after which point we'll be financially sustainable. If you've been considering becoming a patron for a while but haven't gotten around to it, please consider doing so now. Just hit pause and head over to patreon.com slash a world to win pod. That's patreon.com slash a world to win pod. Do it now. We'll wait. You'll get access to exclusive content, behind the scenes action and the chance to influence the future direction of the show. And a big thank you to the Lippmann Miliband Trust for providing us with the grant funding we've needed to bring you these first episodes. You can follow them on Twitter at Lippmann Miliband. And another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do give us a rating if you're a fan. That's pretty important to keep us up in the charts. Also, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for updates, all with the handle at a world to win pod. That's at a world to win pod. Now, here is the amazing Naomi Klein discussing some topical news stories from the week. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Naomi Klein, and thank you so much for joining me on A World to Win. I'm thrilled to be with you. Thank you for having me. So we're going to start by talking about a couple of stories that we've picked out that are kind of in the headlines this week. So the first is from CNBC News, and it is a story saying that the Northern Hemisphere is due for the hottest summer on record. Uh, The period from June through August was 2.11 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about one degree Celsius for our non-American listeners, warmer than um, average in the Northern Hemisphere, which makes this August the second hottest since record keeping began in 1880. So this is a pretty scary story, right, Naomi? It's really scary, yeah, because we are losing um, we're losing Arctic ice at a startling rate. I, I think you know where it's most disturbing in terms of where it's warm is the farther north north you go, and we're seeing just staggeringly warm temperatures in the Arctic. And obviously, the, when we lose ice, the sea level rises, and that has massive global impacts, and we don't get it back. So, yeah. As my friend Bill McKibben says, we, we've we've broken one of the major features of the world, um, that being uh, mm. the Arctic. So yeah, it's bad, and obviously the the wildfires um, are are one symptom of it. The the storms, this kind of fist of simultaneous hurricanes that is battering the the southern coast of 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 North America is another sign of it, and the Caribbean as well. So we're in it. We are definitely in it. There was another part of the article which showed that, and I remember seeing this when it happened, that temperatures in Death Valley hit 
130 degrees Fahrenheit, which was like one of the highest temperatures ever recorded on the planet, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I was, I was in that region last summer and, and it was just impossibly hot at, at, at 118 mm-hmm. degrees. And we're losing these really, really unique ecosystems. Like you know, the, the Joshua trees, this sort of otherworldly landscapes are going up in flames. So yeah, with that, that temperature, um, record is it, you know, this is the, the context in which we are seeing these massive wildfires just in the last few yeah. days. There were the five of the largest wildfires in California's history were burning simultaneously. Um, so heat has a whole lot to do with it. It's not the only factor. There are other factors related to why this is as out of control as it is, including the, the way forests um, have been uh, managed. I mean, this is the strange thing about Donald Trump. He's he's often a little bit right, uh, you know. So he went to California and said, um, you know, it's not about warmer temperatures. It's not about climate change. It's about forest management. It absolutely is about warmer temperatures and drier temperatures. But it but but part of what makes it worse is that there has been a utter erasure and discounting of. Indigenous knowledge in California and in so many other parts of the world as well, um, but there, but Indigenous people used to engage in what are called cultural burns or or, or some, sometimes referred to as controlled burns. So mm. it's a way of taking care of the forest, uh, allowing there to be some fire in the forest is part of a healthy ecosystem. And the way environmentalism has tended to see the forest is as a kind of museum, <laughs> you know, just don't change it at all. Mm. And and there's been a lot of fear of fire as well as as there's been more out of control development, right? So if you're afraid of losing homes, which should never have been built in fire zones in the first place, mm-hmm. um, then you can't tolerate any fire. And so then there's this buildup of what's called fuel, right? Which is just dead wood, de- debris. And so the way I think of it is kind of like if you if if you're making a campfire, right? You you want to have little pieces, little pieces of kindling and maybe some paper, um, and then you have the smaller pieces of wood, and and you get the fire going with a match and then it all goes up and you get the big pieces of wood as well. And so the failure to allow natural fire to clear away the debris and then you have climate change connected insects that don't die in a cyclical way that have been eating wood, have been eating trees and leaving death behind. And now we've just had a a, a new infestation of moths, which do the same thing. So there's just a lot of fuel, and that's the kindling that you that if you imagine a fire being a, a campfire being set, and then the heat is the match. The heat comes along, and just the whole thing blows, and that's where we're at right now. Now you've picked up, you know, obviously on our next story um, there, which is in the FT, Trump questioning the role of climate change in the West Coast wildfires. So yeah, I mean, at least 26 people have died. Um, Obviously, I mean, you will probably, you said you're in Canada right now, you will probably have seen the kind of apocalyptic scenes that have been evident across the West Coast. And Biden in response has described Trump as a, a climate arsonist. How big do you think this issue is going to be in the presidential election campaign? Do you think that the kind of scale of the disasters that we're seeing this year, even as Trump kind of dismisses the idea that it has anything to do with climate breakdown, 
is going to basically make people start, you know, paying attention to this and influencing their voting behavior. I think if Biden stays with the messaging that he's been using just in the last few days, it could have a huge impact because the polling does show that voters are very concerned about climate change. And that's been the biggest shift in the past two years, but particularly the past year and a half, is, you know, in previous years, when you would ask even Democratic voters who said they cared about climate change to rank the issues that they care about, and I, you know, it's, it's a weird kind of polling, right, to ask people, what do you care more about, you know, healthcare or jobs or jobs or, or climate? And so, you know, people make these ridiculous lists as if these issues aren't all right. interconnected. But in this polling, when you ask Democratic Party voters who, who, who do care about climate change to rank it, they reliably put climate change at the bottom of the list, like 19th or 20th. And this has been true now for, for a decade. But in the past couple of years, it has been creeping up to the extent that going into the Democratic primaries, it was rivaling healthcare as the number one issue. And it's also a very high ranking um, issue among, um, um, among independents and, and many Republicans as well. So it's a winning issue. There is definitely a sense of urgency, and particularly when people are dealing with what they know to be unprecedented. You know, I remember being in Mississippi, you know, as red a state as red can be after Hurricane Katrina pummeled the Gulf Coast, and meeting Republicans who said, of course, this is climate change. We built our house here because we know where the high water mark is, and the water has never come up this high before, right? Um, So... When people are living it, when they you know when they know that there's never been a fire like this before, they know there's never been a storm that has surged this high before. It's impacting their lives. Then, sure, they have a tremendous sense of urgency about it. And I think that there's been some smart messaging from the Biden camp, where you know you've got Trump telling this you know with this very targeted suburban messaging, you know Antifa is coming for the suburbs. They want to destroy the suburbs, and meanwhile. What is actually destroying the suburbs is not Antifa. You know, it is wildfires all around the Pacific Northwest. It is um, these unprecedented storm surges. So uh, I think it's smart messaging. I hope he sticks with it. You know, often you see some good climate messaging from sort of centrist Democrats, and then they get scared off. They get told they're politicizing disasters, and then they and then they lose their nerve and back off. I really hope they don't lose their nerve because I think it's a winning message. And so what about the actual policy? Because Biden's obviously got this, you know, two trillion headline grabbing plan for the climate. And I've seen, you know, some positive coverage of of it from kind of progressive outlets, and even from people who were um, supportive of of Bernie and and other candidates. So do you think that this is going to be as transformative as it appears? I mean, I think the short answer is no, not if left to their <laughs> own devices. And to be honest with you, I I haven't really paid a ton of attention. I mean, obviously I'm following it to what the Biden camp is saying. And I guess I've been around for enough election campaigns to know that there's <laughs> a really big difference between what a centrist Democrat will say on the election campaign trail and what they will do in office. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they're looking at the same polling I am. They understand, one, that this is a winning issue that 
crosses partisan divides, that resonates in the wealthy suburbs as well as, you know, in disadvantaged communities and cities. And they also understand that there's a very mobilized youth wing of their party represented by the Sunrise Movement, among others, who are going to make their lives living hell if they don't say some of the right things, right? Um, So does that then mean that they are going to bring us the Green New Deal of our dreams? Absolutely not. It doesn't mean that. Mm -hmm. It means that they understand that this is a winning electoral message, that it's dangerous not to, to, to offer something to the progressive wing of the party. Um, but they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. You know, he's Biden is also giving these speeches about how he absolutely will not ban fracking because they've convinced themselves that this is how to win in Pennsylvania. And I think the the real measure of what we can expect is who Biden surrounds himself with and who he ultimately appoints. Mm. And I think, you know, one sign of hope I I, I would say is that the, the climate justice movement is not kind of taking a wait and see approach to that question, which was one of the big mistakes we made with Obama that, you know, with Obama, there was, there was a very strong, what I describe as like the give the guy a chance um, wing of the, (laughs) of the democratic party where like, no matter what outrageous thing Obama did, where, you know, he runs this campaign talking about how he's going to rescue main street from wall street and then he, and then it becomes clear that that he is taking his economic advice from Larry Summers. Um, yeah. There was still this kind of give the guy a chance. Maybe this is you know this three dimensional chess game he's playing. He's trying to signal keep keep Wall Street calm, but really he's going to do this. And I think that we have learned the lesson the hard way that give the guy no chances, right? I mean, keep the pressure up on all counts. And there's been. Um, you know, letters that have gone out signed by, you know, huge numbers of environmental um, leaders warning the Biden administration not to make appointments to key energy jobs from people who with with ties to the fossil fuel sector, which is what Obama did. Um, so people are yeah. trying to get ahead of it and make it clear that we're not just going to be satisfied with saying some nice things on the campaign trail, that it really is about who he appoints, who he surrounds himself with. And no matter what, it's going to be about the pressure that he's under, right? But, you know, I'm, yeah. I absolutely believe that it is imperative that we get rid of Trump, that we get to terrain where these debates matter, right? We don't even bother pressuring Trump because we know that, that, that it's not possible to pressure him. And it's certainly not when it comes to something like a Green New Deal. It, it's just a dead end. So we need to get to terrain where we can have some power, and we need to learn from the mistakes of the Obama years where, frankly, we wasted the first term of Obama's presidency giving the guy a chance on multiple fronts. And it wasn't until his second term that we started to see mass civil disobedience, whether it was in the climate movement with the Keystone, anti-Keystone XL campaign and the No Dapple campaign at Standing Rock or the Black Lives Matter movement or the movement of the Dreamers, the migrant rights movement. Um, you know, people went into the streets and protested the Obama administration's engaged in civil disobedience, put forward strong alternatives. And it was then that we started to see some movement and and get some and get some half decent policies. Um, obviously, we don't have that kind of time. So what we get from Biden will depend on what we kind of demand in the transition period and from day one. And this is all assuming that we end up in 
what is now the best possible scenario, um, which is Biden winning. <laughs> right, we're now going to move on to the next section of the show where we talk about your life and work. Um, and I have an introduction that I was going to read out here, but there's so much. So I'm going to try and like summarize um yeah the kind of you know your career so far so you can talk to us a little bit about how you got into to these amazing things that you've achieved so first no logo I mean obviously that was like the oasis in the neoliberal desert that existed before the financial crisis oh I'm with you I'm I'm glad that 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 you weren't like comparing me to oasis the band in the 90s so (laughs) I just like a little worried there for me it was a metaphor (laughs) you you know I was more aligned with Radiohead (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> good to know <laughs> um all right I won't so yeah, obviously okay. the logo that was kind of uh, around the time that the only force keeping the left a- alive was the alter globalization movement then you made this documentary the take about a worker factory takeover in argentina and there was the shock doctrine which came out literally on the eve of the financial crisis where its central thesis was proved correct beyond doubt since then, you've had several more, including This Changes Everything and On Fire, your most recent one, The Burning Case for the Green New Deal. So you were involved in Occupy, the Toronto G20 protests. You've been appointed Gloria Steinem, Endowed Chair in Media, Culture and Feminist Studies. And you were recently awarded the Outstanding Lifetime Award for Humanism and Culture, the Rushdie Award. Have I missed anything? <laughs> That's lovely. Thank you. It's incredible. I mean, you've achieved so much and you've done so much for the left over such a long extended period of time. It really is a pleasure to be having you on the show. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in all this stuff? Where did your drive to want to start writing, to want to get involved in activism come from? Sure. Um, Well, I always wrote. I saw myself as a writer writer, or wanted to write um, before I saw myself as as an activist. yeah, as a kid, I wrote a lot, um, wrote a lot of bad poetry, filled many, 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 many journals, um, <laughs> loved writing, loved reading, and grew up in an activist family. My mother's a documentary filmmaker. She was part of the first women's film f- studio, I think, in the world called Studio D uh, in Canada. My parents are war resistors. We came to Canada because my father didn't want to go to Vietnam. Um, my grandfather was a blacklisted uh, union organizer. Um, He worked for Walt Disney as an animator, helped organize Mm. the first animator strike and then got fired and blacklisted. So, you know, I grew up with this and and my my grandparents were part of a kind of a back to the land movement in New Jersey, Mm. where they were part of a founding this kind of commune called Nature Friends where Paul Robeson and Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie would perform. So we had a lot of this culture in our, just growing up. Um, And I was incredibly embarrassed by it because I was like, I grew up in the (laughs) eighties. It was just like, just thought it was all terrible pretty much, but somehow it entered in, in the family lore. And, And when I got to university, I started writing for the campus newspaper and um, getting involved in politics kind of by, just just by events. Um, my first year in university, yeah. there was a terrible massacre at a university in my hometown of Montreal. It was at the time, I think, the worst mass shooting in Canadian history, where a gunman went into an engineering school where he, he had believed that he had been discriminated against as a man. He was sort of like a early incel. Um, mm. This is 1989. 
and he went in and separated the men from the women in the engineering school, lined up the women up against the wall and said, you're all a bunch of fucking feminists and, and killed 14 women and then shot himself. Oh my God. And then, you know, we would, in this state of shock, we turned on our televisions and radios and heard a just sea of male commentators saying that it had nothing to do with feminism or women or misogyny. It was just mental illness. <laughs> Sound familiar? Oh. And so that kind yes. of thing kind of kicks your butt. Um, <laughs> especially, mm. I mean, for me, I had, because I'd grown up in this context and I, I had up till then really tried to sit it out. My brother was the big activist and I was just trying mm. to be a writer and, 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 and not stick out too much. And, suddenly found myself kind of chairing meetings and drawing on this skill set that I didn't realize I had, but I did have because I grew up in a household mm. where there were political meetings in the living room. And, um, so yeah, that's how it all started for me. Wow. Um, so yeah, your, your career kind of began as a vocal critic of neoliberal globalization. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how your critique of the kind of what, you know, liberals were called the liberal rule-based uh, world order has developed since the 1990s. Uh, and in particular, do you think that we're entering a phase of kind of de-globalization? Interesting. Um, I don't, I don't know whether we are or not. I don't know exactly what this stage is that we are in. I don't think anyone does, but we are in a new stage. And I think that Trump marked a different era where certainly a new kind of protectionism has emerged, but I don't think it really is nearly as much in conflict with that neoliberal trade order as he would like us to believe it is in, in the same way that, yeah. you know, I think Johnson likes to position the conservative party as being as challenging, you know, the globalists and, and so on. I think they've learned to tap into the, the, the deeper critique of what that trade regime represented in terms of deindustrialization and, and, and a hollowing out of, uh, of economies and a casualization of labor and so on. And, and they understand that their base cares about this. And so they've found ways to, mostly perform, I would say, mostly perform changes to the to that global economic order. But that said, I think that there are real shifts going on in the conflicts with China. I don't know that there necessarily is a rhyme or reason to it beyond Trump just wanting to hold on to power. But you know, for me in the in the 90s, you know, I came to it because I had a, a newspaper column in in paper in Canada, the Toronto Star. And I edited a left-wing magazine called This Magazine. And we were doing a lot of reporting about the impacts of this trade regime on labor. I was reporting both on the sweatshops where our goods were being made in Indonesia and in the Philippines and elsewhere and eventually China. And I was also reporting on the, the rise of the Mick jobs, you know, and this is all in no logo. Um mm. It really 
came out of, of of trying to understand how we how stuff was being made now, right? The stuff of our lives and and the rise of what I was calling these hollow brands, right? Then that the, these brands that didn't own their own factories and and understanding it that it, it was not just about where things were being produced. It was a it was a way that corporations were thinking of themselves not at primarily as producers of of stuff, but as producers of ideas, of identities, of, of tribes, right? Um, and, and that was the Nike mm-hmm. model. And it was a revolution in its time, right? Th- that you would have a company that, that seemed to be a, a company that was, selling, that was primarily about manufacturing and selling trainers, not own a single one of its factories, right? Like that was a new business model um, because all of its competitors owned their whole supply chain. And it was so profitable that everybody started to imitate it. Um, but what I was trying to capture was the way that business model changed both labor and culture, right? Because if you're selling, obviously it changes labor because it casualizes it and it makes the people who make the stuff less important to the powerful players um, because they're employed through a web of contractors and subcontractors. And if there's a problem at one factory, they just pull the contract and give it to someone else. So it reduces the power of labor, right? Mm -hmm. But it also changes culture because if your product is your idea, your identity, then you, you, you produce through marketing, you produce through devouring those manifestations and expressions of those ideas in the real world through corporate sponsorships and, and so on. And so, yeah, as a, as a kind of young reporter, I was trying to, I was interested in how youth culture was being devoured in this period. And so, you know, No Logo was both a labor book and a culture book, right? A, a book about, about how our culture was changing. And Trump is a product of that. And this is something that I think that mm-hmm. is, is important for us understand, you know, Trump is the first hollow brand to be a head of state. And you could argue that Berlusconi was a, what was a, an early example of this. Not really, because Berlusconi wasn't himself the brand, right? I mean, he owns, you know, this whole web of, you know, media properties and sports teams and so on. He was in that business, but the brand was not Berlusconi. In, in Trump's case, the brand is Trump, right? And he mm-hmm. pivoted that, he translated that into his political career. And that's, you know, I, I, don't th- I don't think people spend enough time thinking about what it means to have a brand as a president. Uh, it's quite extraordinary, really. A lot of these trends began, you know, around the financial crisis of 2008, where you started to see that big shock to really kind of neoliberal or financial globalization, whatever you want to call it. And a lot of the kind of structures and norms and institutions that had been built up during that period of, you know, growth between like the end of the the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, and the financial crisis being challenged. You were obviously involved in the protest movements that emerged in the wake of that crisis as well, because you were involved in Occupy and the kind of resistance to basically, you know, it's incredible that you wrote the shock doctrine and it came out in 2007. And then a year later, you know, all over Europe and the UK, you had governments making use of this massive crisis to impose the costs um, of, uh, you know, a financial meltdown on working people through austerity. Um, and, but I mean, you know, obviously, it, it, capitalism is a crisis creation machine, <laughs> as you know. So it's yeah. not that incredible that yeah. there was an inc- a, cri- a crisis. And well, yeah, you know, <laughs> you, you know, true. 
But I mean, there really, you know, this me- this method came that that had been workshopped all around the world. At, you know, after the Asian financial crisis, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, at the peso crisis. You know, this is what I was r- writing about in, in the Shock Doctrine. You know, it finally came home to the center of power on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously that had a huge impact on the movements that you know we've been involved in that you've been involved in since then um yeah i mean a lot of uh the kind of energy behind the corbyn and sanders moments can in one way or another be traced back to occupy and the protests that that came out in the wake of the financial crisis what do you see as the lasting impact of that crisis on the left mm-hmm. yeah and i mean in some ways i think there is there is a through line um that that we can see from so many of, the, of these movements and the way they get reported on in the press is as if they are all separate, right? That there isn't a connection between the ultra globalization movements um, of the early 200s and late 90s, you know, and Occupy. But of course, there are, and there are connections between the the, the climate justice movement and Occupy and Bernie and Corbyn. You know, with any luck, we learn from our mistakes, <laughs> um, and I think that the limits of the movements of the squares, you know, one of them was that a lot of them didn't put forward alternatives to this failed system. And there was a kind of fetish for not having demands and not, um, and, and it was, it was a, it was a, it was a no, but it wasn't a strong yes for what we want instead. And there there are exceptions to this, but I think that, you know, in honest self-criticism from people who were, involved in, in, in Tahrir Square or, um, or, you know, up massive uprisings in, in Greece and Syriza, you know, there is an honest critique, self-critique of the failure to, to do more than say no. Right. And, you know, you mentioned mm. that I was involved in them. I was, you know, I was, I, you know, I, I was supportive of them and I, you know, I, I went to Occupy a few, few times and, and met with, with, with activists and went to meetings but the truth is that I made a decision after the shock doctrine came out that, and the, and the, and the global economy melted down, that I was not going to just go around doing what I would joked with my partner, Avi, was the I told you so tour, um, because I was getting <laughs> invitations. Like I was getting invitations like, you know, come, you know, come to Spain, come to Greece, come here, come here and, 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 and tell us about the shock doctrine. And I, and I just thought, well, why? Because clearly people understand it, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the shout in the streets was we won't pay for your crisis. And it was this incredible, powerful, uprising of, of people naming what was happening. This was a crisis created by the elites. It was created by the banks. The cost of it was being systematically offloaded onto the people least responsible and most vulnerable. It was happening in country after country. And people were resisting and they were naming it. And some of it were, call, were calling it the shock doctrine. And it was not working. Like it was already clear that that sort of no, that just just the, the oppositional no, was was not going to stop it. It was happening anyway. And that's when I decided to write This Changes Everything because, yeah. you know, I made this concerted decision to sort of keep my distance a little bit because I felt really strongly that we needed to have a sweeping yes, like a really transformational vision of what kind of world we wanted instead that would 
that would that would be a you know I I, I don't want to use the word solution because I don't think that it's that simple but would be a a process of repair to these intersecting brokennesses with the, the the broken of our physical world, what we've done to our physical world with climate change, but so many other ecological crises, the legacy of 40 years of austerity and the brokenness of our infrastructures of care and the simultaneous brokenness of the construction of the carceral state, which is intimately connected to all of that disinvestment into the, the, the parts of the state that actually help people. And that's that's the way I see the Green New Deal. You know, that's the way I see mm. the you know what what you know, and it, and it has gone by many names. You know, when I wrote this, changes everything. I quoted a Bolivian climate change uh, negotiator named Angelica Navarro. She was also Bolivia's WTO ambassador, who called for a Marshall Plan for Planet Earth, and it was the same idea: let's create jobs um, and 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 battle climate disruption at the same time, and let's set the world right. Let's let's actually pay reparations for colonialism and slavery, like, yeah. and, you know, these are the scary words, right? But this is what we need to do. And, you know, I, I remember being in Europe when I was researching this changes everything. And I met you know, with Tsipras and, you know, some Podemos folks, and they were all saying, and this is what, you know, this is, this is what, like 2010, 2011. Nobody, like literally Tsipras said to me in a, in, Nobody cares about about the environment anymore. They, they all they care about is the economy. <laughs> and I was like, your job is to make them care <laughs> because they don't care because they feel like they have to choose, and they don't have to choose. It is possible. We, we we need a vision for how to create jobs and solve the climate crisis at the same time. This is the route out of crisis, and he dismissed it absolutely out of hand. And we heard similar discourse at the time, although it changed from folks in Podemos who were saying, you know. I remember, you know, Iglesias saying people can't care about climate when they when they have to put food on the table, and it's like, don't make them choose, right? Like yeah. as you know, Grace, like they're, they're like the whole idea of a green new deal or it, or whatever you want to call it is that it says to people, you know, we can create family supporting jobs that heal our planet simultaneously and get us off fossil fuels and. That was such a wasted opportunity, and it was a global wasted opportunity. But we need, you know, we need to be self critical about it. We and so I think there is a generation now of climate justice organizers and activists and insurgent politicians who who get the depth of that error and are are campaigning on that intersectional vision. Finally, right? So, yeah, that's what that's what I was doing in that period was kind of fiending away. <laughs> On, on on what ultimately, you know, w- became our sort of blueprint a little bit, um, which we launched first in Canada, the LEAP Manifesto, exactly five years ago. Yeah. So we're now in the middle of this massive worldwide crisis generated by COVID-19. Do you think we're about to be taught another lesson in the politics of the shock doctrine? Or are you more optimistic we'll be able to use this moment to push for real change based on the fact that we have maybe a mm. politics that is formed more around the idea of, you know, what you might call a yes rather than just a no. Like, could the Green New Deal be our yes in this moment that we can actively fight and push for in the wake of this crisis that um, is obviously going to cause so much suffering and require so much of our economic and social systems to be completely rewired? 
It should be. And mm. I think that that we we need as expansive of a vision as as we possibly can, one that really brings movements together because we are also in the in the midst of you know what's being called a racial reckoning, a, a racial justice uprising. Mm. And and you know, some people are starting to talk about a black and red and green New Deal. And I like that framing because I I I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done to to really weave these movements together um, and taking the demands, the transformative demands from all the movements, including defunding police and challenging the carceral state and investing, taking that money and investing it in the infrastructure of care. And, you know, we need to be informed by the feminist movement in this um, so that we have as expansive a Green New Deal as possible that really resonates with as many people who will fight for it as possible, right? Like this is not just about being politically correct and ticking off lots of boxes, right? It's about how do you build a winning coalition? How do you motivate people to fight for something? Because, you know, as we said at the beginning, you know, we lost the fights where we might have had a chance to have governments that got this. Um, our best case scenarios are centrist, a centrist labor party and a centrist democratic party government, right? So mm. that, that the need for social movements to be united in that yes, right? And, and really expansive and exciting a base, a population of people to fight for it and implement it uh, at, a, at a local level, right? I mean, we need to look at, you know, wh- where does labor control cities, um, why, why, why can't we do a lot more of this in London, for instance, or Manchester? Um, yeah. And same is true for New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles. I mean, these are areas where we can't just blame Johnson and, and Trump, right? We supposedly have some power in those places and, and not enough has happened. And that matters because, th- you know, this is where most most people live in cities, right? And so if they can see that their quality of life improves when we get some of these policies passed, then the uh, then the, the sort of right-wing talking points that pits jobs versus the environment, you know, start to fall apart because people's lived experience tells them otherwise that they don't have to choose. Mm. So now that we are seeing, as you say, these kind of centrist candidates take back, I suppose, the political parties in in the US and the UK. Can you see a viable path to actually achieving the Green New Deal? We've talked a little bit about, um, you know, the importance of movements that are going to be there to kind of push these politicians to be more radical on these issues. Ultimately, we are going to need legislation. You know, this is a massive collective action problem and states are supposed to be there to help solve those collective action problems by, you know, enforcing yeah. changes that we we know we all need. So yeah, kind of do you see a path to that level of both legislative change, but also the ability to marshal the kind of scale of collective resources we're going to need to tackle this issue now that those campaigns are over? Well, it's a lot harder, but it w- would have been hard anyway, because the truth is that what we experienced during the campaigns in terms of these relentless smear campaigns uh, you know, against Corbyn, against Sanders, and the reality that a significant portion of the Labour Party clearly would rather have Johnson than Corbyn, and a significant portion of you know, centrist Democrats would rather would rather risk Trump than 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 a so- Democratic socialist president. Um, yeah, it means. That, that, you know, what we got was just the smallest taste of how hard they would have fought them if they'd won. Mm. 
So it wouldn't have been easy and it, and, and it may not have been successful. So this, so this is another route that we're talking about that would require a massive mobilization, right? I mean, when we talk about social movement pressure, if you look at what happened during the 1930s when FDR was president, what was happening on the left in the United States, it's just extraordinary. There were more strikes every year. You know, you would think that when you're winning social security and unemployment insurance and breaking up the banks that people might think that they didn't need to have a general strike, but that's when they had a general yeah. strike, right? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly. really interesting. Like uh, my, my friend Raj Patel had put together this graph of worker disruptions during the 1930s. And what you see is that as the New Deal went on, the number of strikes sharply increases. So like the high point was 1937. New New Deal begins in 1933. That's when they're shutting down entire cities and, and ports and so on. 1936 as well. But it was not just like a protest. It was it was mobilized populations, right? And this is why Howard Zinn would say, yeah, th- worry about who you vote for while you're in the voting booth, but the rest of the time build power, you know, because people's history of the United States is about that kind of power that organized neighborhood by neighborhood, workplace by workplace to build that kind of muscle, that kind of power that could win something on the scale of the original New Deal, which as we know, left out women, left out many black workers because Mm -hmm. it didn't include agricultural workers and domestic workers. And there was systemic discrimination in the labor movement but also had programs that brought more resources to African-Americans and indigenous Americans than in any other program since. They're complicated legacies and that we, and we have to learn from both their failures and their successes. So yeah, I do think it's possible. It is really, really hard. And it really is about understanding that we have to rebuild from the wreckage of neoliberalism, right? And in some ways, I think we may have been overly naive in thinking that we could have done this from the top down, right? From, Mm. um, you know, because Corbyn and Sanders, if they had won, would not have had organized populations the way FDR did. Because we can't rebuild from 50 years of attacks on the labor movement that quickly. So it's, you know, it's a different landscape and that that's work that we, that we desperately need to do. And I think, you know, coming back to what you were asking about the pandemic and whether, how would we potentially win it? You know, I think one of the things that the pandemic has done is it has shown to millions of workers who have been treated as most disposable whose work had been most degraded, who were told that they were unskilled, that they were so easily replaceable, right? That they are in fact the most essential workers in our economy. They were labeled essential yeah. workers, right? And if you look at who the essential workers are, it's just, it's the working class. It's the people who keep the lights on. Yeah. It's the people who deliver the mail. It's the people who take care of the, you know, the elder. I mean, we know who we're talking about. We're talking about the people who make the world run. And somehow had been, you know, I, and I want to be careful about how I say this, because I think that, 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 that so many of those workers did know how important their work was. But look, neoliberal ideology is a powerful force. And so now Amazon workers know how important they are to keeping people fed and, and pe- keeping people clothed. 
And so I think that this is where, I think it's not going to look like the 1930s, what, what it means to exercise essential worker power, right? And it's being organized online and it's being, and in person, but it's, you know, these are new tools that are being organized. Tech workers are organizing. I think there's different levers in a different era of capitalism, but that is our hope. Our, our hope, I think, lies with the, the essential workers who have been so mistreated and you know whether it's nurses sent to, to care for for patients with covid without what they needed to keep themselves and their families safe i mean there are so many enraged workers out there right now yeah rightfully and righteously enraged and there is power in that if if we can mobilize it um the last thing i just want to ask you very quickly is that we always end the show with talking about campaigns or struggles or movements that you're involved in that you want to bring to people's attention and maybe encourage them to get involved in. I know that you've been, for example, involved with the Progressive International. So yeah, I mean that and and any other campaigns that you want to talk about just to bring to people's attention. I would just share that one of the things that I've been working on in this period is a sequel to a little film that some of your listeners may have seen called A Message from the Future with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It was um, AOC from the future telling the story of how we won the Green New Deal, illustrated by the brilliant uh, visual artist Molly Crabapple. And that film just had an incredible response. Uh, It was, was viewed by more than 12 million people. And people, you know, especially educators, talked so much to us about how important it was to have a vision of the world that we want. And so early on in the pandemic, we um, had some conversations with Molly and decided to do a sequel. Um, And it's gone through various iterations, but it is an attempt to do some of what we've been talking about, Grace, which is really knit together the various movements that are mobilized and, and energized and courageous in this moment, the racial justice uprisings, the essential worker uprisings. So it's called Message from a Pandemic, The Years of Repair. And it uh, is co-written by my partner, Avi Lewis, and Opal Tometi, one of, the, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. And it tries to tell the story of how we learned the lessons of this this terrible crisis that we're that we are living through and change the way we live and in launching it we're going to be launching it in a couple of weeks come it's going to come out at the beginning of October we're launching it with a coalition of groups that embody the kind of intersectional approach that we need so i would urge people to go to theleap.org um, and and find the message message from a pandemic. It may not be up yet, but it'll be up very soon. And they can find out what d- different partners that we're working with to to roll out the film are doing. It's you know, there's we're working with indigenous coalition of groups on a land back program. Working um, with different green groups like Greenpeace International. We're working with the Nurses Union, um, National Nurses United. So yeah, it's not one campaign. It's an attempt to kind of weave a bunch of different great coalitions together into a common vision of the world that we so desperately need. That's amazing. Thank you so much for joining me on this brilliant episode of A World to Win. It was a pleasure talking to you. A pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for all your wonderful work. Ciao.